0: you could turn with me in your Bibles, the book of Luke chapter 21 this morning. While you're turning there, I have a confession to make before we go any further here today. And I know it's the kind of confession that could get me drummed out of the guys' union. I am not the handiest guy you've ever met in your life. As a matter of fact, my tool of preference when something goes wrong around the house is uh, my cell phone. I call my friend Popeye and I said, can you get over here and help me fix this thing? Well, for people like me, you know, three of the most terrifying words that you'll ever see in your life are the words, some assembly required. (laughs) And if you've ever found yourself staring down the barrel of, say, one of those uh, easy to assemble pieces of furniture from Ikea, where you've got 500 pieces of various uh, things of wood and only an allen wrench and some instructions written in Danish to uh, try to do battle with it, well, you know how difficult it can be when you've got one of those projects to do. You know, you can have all the pieces in place, but if we don't follow the directions... Well, we can find ourselves with one big disappointing mess in front of us. Not that any of you have ever experienced that, but I've experienced that on a number of occasions. You know, it's funny. I believe that biblical prophecy works the exact same way. Let's face it. We have in front of us this morning, sitting in your lap, your Bible, contains all the pieces of the puzzle to be able to understand what God is up to in this world, where this world is heading, and where we will be when God's plan is all said and done. But isn't it amazing how oftentimes the gift of God's heavenly heads up, his look ahead into the future, instead of providing clarity in our lives, can bring confusion. Instead of finding prophecy as it is intended by God to build up our faith, well, mishandled, biblical prophecy and the teaching of biblical prophecy, especially regarding the last days and the end times, can end up generating an awful lot of fear. Even though God desires for prophecy to bring about a greater dependence on the Lord, Well, mishandled biblical prophecy can end up being one massive distraction in our walk with God, unless, of course, we learn to follow the instructions. This morning, in Luke chapter 21, we're going to take a look at Jesus, well, not only giving us an overview of what the future of mankind is from 30,000 feet. This morning, we are also going to learn exactly what Jesus wants you to understand practically about the subject of biblical prophecy, what he desires to do in our lives personally as we begin to truly understand what the message of Jesus' soon return is all about. We're going to see that far than just a sidelight, Far than just, well, maybe the World Weekly News or National Enquirer section of the Bible, biblical prophecy can absolutely and completely change our lives. We're going to see that Jesus is returning. And if we ask the question, so what, God has a very powerful and personal answer he wants to bring about in this question. Now, if you were with us last time in Luke chapter 21, Jesus, as we know, this is final week leading up to his crucifixion, is there in the grounds of the temple. If you've ever gone with us on one of our tours of Israel, one of the highlights for me is going to the area around uh, the uh, Temple Mount known as the Southern Steps. Because when you're there, this is where, generally speaking, the uh, rabbis and teachers of Jesus' day would gather and do Bible studies on a regular basis. When you're there on the southern steps, uh, you know, when you see a trip to Israel build as walking in the footsteps of Christ, well, in most situations, you're probably walking about uh, 30 feet of rubble above where the footsteps of Christ were. But not at the southern steps. The southern steps, you are right where Jesus taught. And there, there's just something about that. And being there, that just gives me the shivers. It it just really moves me. Well, this is where Jesus was. And and, uh, again, as he was there in the temple area, in verse 5 it says, Then some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. Then he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Now let's take a look at this situation for just a moment and and maybe use a bit of sanctified imagination to really grasp what is going on here. When the disciples pointed to the temple and talked about it being adorned with beautiful stones and decorations, we were with us last week, we talked about how the idea of impressive stones in the temple complex was not just whistling Dixie, Well, we spoke a bit about if you go to uh, Israel with us, we're hoping to put together a tour for a year from this spring now that Israel is opening up again. But one of the highlights is being around the temple area, and you can go to this place called the Rabbi's Tunnel where you can see some of the original stones that Herod the Great put in place just to buttress the Temple Mount complex itself. One of them, as we saw, uh, it is just this massive stone 40 feet wide 10 feet high 10 feet wide weighs more than a fully loaded 747 jet it is perfectly placed in the walls so you can't even fit a piece of paper between the adjoining stones and even to this day modern engineers doubt that they could uh, duplicate the feet that uh, Herod the Great and his uh, architects did when they put this stone in place. So when the disciples looked at these stones, they were very impressed. When they talked about the beautiful donations, well, Herod the Great was famous for lavishing very expensive uh, pieces of decoration and so forth on the various projects that, that he included In all of this. And he'd been working at it for quite some time. At this point where Jesus is standing there. This temple complex had been worked on for some forty-six years. It would finally be completed about sixty-seven A.D., or roughly around thirty-three years after the time of Christ. So you better believe they were looking at a very, very impressive building. Now, notice as well, Jesus, uh, when they point these things out to him, has a very different reaction than the average tourist. He said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, Jesus isn't just speaking in terms of hype here. He is not just speaking in terms of an attention-getting kind of uh, rhetorical flourish, if you will. He is making a prophecy that of all the predictions that Jesus ever made in his earthly ministry, this one seemed the least likely to ever be fulfilled. Now, again, this idea that not one stone would be left upon another in this complex. Uh, If you had been standing there, you would have just shaken your head because nothing by the lights of those who were there with Jesus seemed more solid, more immovable than the temple complex itself, especially the temple building. As a matter of fact, uh, later on when the Romans would uh, put down a Jewish rebellion and eventually destroy the temple, one of the reasons they did so was because the Jews felt that the most defensible place on the whole uh, area of Jerusalem was the temple itself. It seemed like it wasn't going anywhere. And yet, it did. Again, if you go to Jerusalem with us, one of the uh, highlight moments is going up on the Temple Mount complex for a number of reasons. First of all, just to be in that place and to know that you're standing right there where all of these Tremendous events happen where the, the Temple of Solomon once stood, where, where Herod's Temple once stood, the, the, the place where Jesus would be, and, 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 and so on. It's just a really moving experience. It's a kind of a troubling experience as well. Because first of all, when you go up on that Temple Mount complex, you discover that of all the territory that Israel controls, coming back as a miraculous manifestation in 1948, There's one exception to that rule in Jerusalem. Israel controls both West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem with one big exception, the Temple Mount complex itself. That is controlled by a Jordanian organization called the Wakfa. And the Wakfa, you know, don't mean to be judgmental here with you this morning. They're not really pleasant people. Uh, In the times that we've been up there... Uh, I witnessed one couple holding hands while they were walking around the temple area. Remember, the Wakva came up with a stick and hit them, saying, No holding hands. If they catch you, even closing your eyes and bowing your head in a word of prayer, they will come up and assault and accost you because no prayer, aside from Muslim prayer, is permitted on this Temple Mount complex. But one of the most overwhelming uh, experiences that I had is looking upon this Temple Mount area and seeing that Jesus' words were completely and literally fulfilled. There is not a single trace of the temple to be seen in that entire complex. And as I said, nothing could have seemed further from the truth. Even during the Jewish war that the Jewish historian Josephus describes, in his wars of the Jews, uh, when the, the battle was raging around Jerusalem, the, the, uh, the forces of Titus, the uh, Roman general that eventually becomes Caesar, uh, were there. Uh, Titus had a desire to preserve the temple because obviously it was built by a Roman proxy, Herod the Great. It was a very outstanding piece of architecture and he just assumed that once the Jews were put down, they could repurpose it and continue to use it as a sign and a sight of the grandeur and the glory of Rome. So he gave explicit orders to his troops not to touch the temple, to leave it alone. You know, they would have to deal with the temple guards, they would have to put them down, there was obviously going to be some bloodshed involved with this, and there certainly was. But it was his priority to preserve this monument to the architectural genius of Herod the Great and the power of Rome. But what happened? Well, in the battle that ensued, uh, we are told that in spite of Titus' orders, a number of fires broke out around the temple area. Most of them were put down. But we are told that uh, during one of the uh, final battles, even though Titus had given uh, strict orders, that the temple wasn't going to be burned, one of the soldiers, who was just so enraged at the Jews, hated them so much, didn't care what Titus, his general, said. He took a torch and threw it into the temple area, uh, and not with any purpose behind it, it just happened to hit in a place where it ignited almost the entire inward area of the temple complex. And, and even though the Jews who were in there tried to put the fire out, Because the Roman soldiers were there, a lot of them were slaughtered and and so on, and the Romans didn't want to put the fire out. One thing led to another, and this fire consumed the inside of this glorious temple complex that was built. Now, the fascinating thing about this is that quite a bit of the inside of this temple was uh, lined with solid gold. And when the fire began to ignite, the temperature liquefied the gold. The gold made its way down through the cracks of the various stones that made up the temple. And so in the aftermath, in order to salvage any kind of value from this now ruined complex, the Romans came in and took down all of the stones to get at the gold. Not one stone was left Upon another. Now, when Jesus said this thing was going down, looking at something as massive, as solid as the temple itself, and saying this was going to get wiped out so that there wouldn't even be a trace of it left, it it was hard for Jesus' listeners to wrap their mind around such a complex. Oh, how could such a thing be? It would be like someone taking you down to the U of A campus, pointing at Arizona Stadium and saying, within 40 years, this entire complex is going to be leveled, so there's not going to be a single piece of concrete left. We'd say to ourselves, how could such a thing be? And yet, Jesus made the prediction, and the prediction was filled down to the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the eyes. Now, why do I point this out to you? Well, this is the first insight, and we need to grasp about why the Bible contains predictive prophecy. Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, we sort of take it for granted that the Bible has predictive prophecy in it, and it, it certainly does. Uh, one uh, out of every three verses that you find in your Bible is devoted to the subject of predictive prophecy. But have you ever wondered why? Well, God hasn't left that to guesswork. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, beginning at verse 6, listen to what the Lord says about why God is so interested in showing us the future before it takes place. Here in verse 6, we read this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not, be, uh, do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. What is God saying? What God is saying is extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. God is saying, I'm the true and living God. How can you know that I'm the true and living God? Because I will tell you the future before it happens. Now, why is that such a proof positive that we're dealing with God here? Well, if you're going to have predictive prophecy, a few things have to be true. Number one, the person who is predicting these things, if they're going to be entirely accurate, has to be Unlimited by time, as we understand it. They need to be able to see the future before it takes place. They aren't limited, as we are, by living in a moment. Secondly, that person who predicts these sort of things has to be, in a sense, all-powerful, because they have to arrange all of the possible circumstances and consequences and decisions and so forth to make sure that their prediction comes to pass. God's fingerprints are all over the realm of predictive prophecy. And this is something that we really need to understand. God gives us predictive prophecy because prophecy creates confidence in the purpose and the plan of God. Not only in great broad strokes in terms of what God is doing in this world, but also what God is doing in each of our lives individually, our own individual worlds. And that's a very powerful thing. You know, there's a a really strange movement that is afoot, even in Bible-believing churches these days. We're ostensibly Bible-believing churches. A lot of them are, you know, kind of looking at biblical prophecy and the, the doctrine that Jesus could come at any time, and they're sort of shoving it to the side. They're not really interested in talking about these things. They they, they say things like, well, you know, we don't really want to emphasize that. We don't want to teach the book of Revelation. We don't want to be uh, talking about the second coming of Christ because it just really upsets people. People end up just getting confused. You know, talk about missing the point. The more we understand the previous track record that we see, of Jesus, say, 100% hit the bullseye prediction of something that was considered an absolute almost impossibility by his original listeners, that the temple would be destroyed and not one stone would be left upon another. Jesus was accurate in that prediction, and so we can know that Jesus is also accurate, the Bible is also accurate, in the rest of the predictions that it makes. You see, Jesus at his first coming fulfilled over 103 Old Testament prophecies. And that is a really remarkable thing when we stop and think about it. Dr. Peter Stoner, in his book Science Speaks, did a statistical analysis of what the odds would be of just one person in human history fulfilling just eight of the major messianic prophecies that refer to the first coming of Jesus. Well, he sat down and did this analysis, and he came to the conclusion that the odds of one person in any one given time fulfilling just eight major messianic prophecies was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. 10 to the 17th power is a huge number. It's hard for us to wrap our mind up around how big a number that is. It's 10 with 17 zeros after it. We don't even have a name for a number that big. But 10 to the 17th power, silver dollars, if you want to use an analogy, would form a mass that would cover the entire state of Texas three feet deep in silver dollars. (laughs) Could you imagine that? Now, could you imagine uh, winning a contest where they say, all right, you're the lucky winner, and what we're going to do is we're going to give you a chance to own all of these silver dollars, the, the, the silver dollar mass that covers the entire state of Texas three feet deep. Here's all you have to do. One of these silver dollars is marked with an X. It's been tossed somewhere inside the state of Texas. The whole mass has been stirred thoroughly. We're going to blindfold you. You can wander anywhere you want in the state of Texas and pick a silver dollar. And if you pick that silver dollar with the X on it, you get to keep the whole bunch. Well, could you imagine wading into all of that and maybe getting out to Midland, Odessa or someplace like that and then stooping down and, and you know, just uh, about two and a half feet down, you, you pick up one and you hold it up and there it is. The one with the X on it, you got it the first time. People look at that and they say, no way. No way. This thing has to be rigged. It has to be fixed. Yeah. God rigged the game. God fixed the game. When Jesus fulfilled just eight of these major messianic prophecies. And the reason this is so important for us to understand is God wants you to have incredible confidence in his word we don't believe the bible is the word of god just because it makes us feel good we don't believe the bible is the word of god just because other people seem to believe the bible is the word of god or we were raised in a certain tradition we begin to understand that we can put our faith and our trust in the bible for three reasons when people ask me why do you believe the bible is the word of god i got an answer for them number one it's doctrinally consistent the Bible, although written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages, agrees down to the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the I's the most controversial subjects known to man. You know, let's face it, if we got 40 of us together in the fellowship hall afterwards and discussed the events of the day, we'd probably have 40 different opinions. Has does the Bible have just one point of view on even the most controversial subjects? God's overseeing it. Doctrinal consistency. Secondly, historical accuracy. The Bible doesn't begin with the words, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It, again, it purports to be God revealing his truth to us as human beings. And we can check out the Bible's accuracy not just based upon high-sounding spiritual sentiments, but because what we see in the Bible is written in human history. If the Bible gets its act together and tells us the straight truth about things we can verify in the here and now on the horizontal, we can also have great confidence it's telling us the truth about the things we can't see, the things that pertain to heaven. Very important for us to understand that. And finally, and this is the most important reason, predictive prophecy. <laughs> you know, have you ever uh, had the thought cross your mind, boy, wouldn't it be great if I could go back in time and, and, and see the ministry of Jesus personally? Have you ever had that, that, that thought cross your mind, you know, to, to jump in Doc Brown's DeLorean and set the, uh, the uh, thing for AD 33 or something like that, and then see uh, Jesus' ministry for yourself? If you could do that, if you could see just one incident in the life of Jesus, which one would you pick? Now, let's exclude the resurrection right there, <laughs> you know, I mean, I always would want to be around for that. But something that, short of the resurrection, which incident in the life of Jesus would you like to pick? Well, for me, quite frankly, it's the transfiguration of Jesus. I, I've thought about it a lot. You know, when Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a high mountain, uh, most believe that this was Mount Hermon in Israel. This is recorded in Matthew 17, and we saw it in our study in Luke chapter 9. If you want to get that study and get up close and personal with it, you certainly can. We're told that when Jesus got up on that high mountain, suddenly Jesus' appearance was transfigured, it was transformed, metamorphosized, literally. So that his face shone like the sun in its glory, and his clothing became as white as lightning in its appearance. But wait, there's more. Then Moses and Elijah showed up, and they began to discuss with Jesus his departure, literally his exodon, we get our term exodus from that, that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. But wait, there's more. Not only did Moses and Elijah show up, not only is Jesus shining in this uh, amazing glory that would probably strike fear into all of our hearts if we saw it, But then a cloud covers the mountain and the voice of God, the father himself speaks from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Wow. Why don't you want to be there for that? Talk about a preview of the kingdom to come. To have that kind of experience, I'd say, wow. You know, if I had that kind of experience, I'd never doubt again. But you know, if we were to ask one of the eyewitnesses of that experience, where his fortress from doubt was found. It wasn't found in the transfiguration, although it was a powerful picture of all this. No less an individual than Simon Peter, who was there and actually saw the transfiguration, wrote this in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He said, "'For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty.'" for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. Wow, life-changing experience, Peter. Being with Jesus on the holy mountain, hearing the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. But verse 19 blows us away. Peter goes on to say, and so... We have the prophetic word confirmed. What you would do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now that's what Peter says. What confirms my faith? It wasn't that I was there on the holy mountain. It was because we've got the prophetic word made more sure, some translations put it. You see, God gives us biblical prophecy. And these predictions fulfilled so that we can have confidence in His Word and confidence in His Word concerning what He says about your life and my life. How about this one? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is God's personal prediction for your life, believer. He's not going to give up on you, He's going to keep working on you until you get it, until you're everything that God saved you to be. Man, I love that. Sometimes I give up on me, but God never gives up on me. How do I know that? Because we have the prophetic word made more sure. If every prediction Jesus made, if every prediction the Bible makes has come to pass, then that personal prediction is going to come to pass. God really does have a purpose And a plan. And who wouldn't like to hold on to that a bit in these crazy times? But wait, there's more. Prophecy not only creates confidence in God's word, prophecy promises us peace. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, we see this. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights And great signs from heaven. Now, notice, God doesn't just provide prophecy to confirm his credentials as far as his word is concerned. He also gives it, catch this, to replace fear with faith. That's the second thing that prophecy does within our lives it removes fear and it generates great faith within our lives. And boy, don't we need great faith within our lives. Jesus, speaking of the time leading up to his return, says, don't be deceived. Boy, deception is doing land office business in our day and age, and it usually runs in two various threads that we can see. First of all, there's going to be people that are going to say, I'm God. There's going to be individuals that are going to misrepresent God or try to pass themselves off as God. The Bagwan Sri Rajneesh, who took over an entire city up in Oregon not too long ago, claimed that he was God in human flesh. Shirley MacLaine had her big spiritual breakthrough and publicized it in her book and the movie Out on a Limb when she stood on the beach at Malibu and shouted at the waves, I am God! She said that put her over the top. Of course, she didn't then walk on the water to Catalina Island to prove it, but that was another story. You can count on these kind of you can be God or follow our rituals and our routines. and You can be a God and populate your own spiritual planet with your spiritual offspring like the Mormons teach. All of these kind of doctrines are going to be out there. They're going to misrepresent represent God, but also misrepresent God's plan. That's another form of deception. And isn't it funny that the focus of deception and distortion seems to be revolving around the doctrine of the second coming? I mean, we see it all the time. We see people saying, oh, you know, there's these blood moons, these lunar eclipses, and, you know, they happen to coincide with Jewish holidays, so I'm sure the rapture is going to happen right then. And then it doesn't happen, and people are like, "Yeah, I'm old enough to remember uh, a self-taught Bible scholar former NASA engineer named Edgar C. Wisenant, uh, got headlines for his lovely little tome, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Must Return in 1988. Well, I can give you one reason why Jesus didn't return in 1988. Jesus clearly said, no man knows the day or the hour. But every time one of these individuals comes forward with either a doctrine that misrepresents God or misrepresents and distorts his plan to return, Jesus has a piece of advice for you. And I can save you a lot of Melox moments spiritually if you'll just follow this piece of advice. Don't go after them. Jesus gave us the heads up. He gave us the warning. If someone says, I've got it all figured out, just uh, you know, follow my easy to follow diagrams and charts, and you know I, I figured out the second coming by counting the consonants in the Old Testament and dividing whether Adam had a belly button or not, and that's how I've come to this conclusion. Well, in any deception situation, you got to have two people, right? You got to have a deceiver and a deceivee. Can I suggest to you this morning that you make it your business not to be a deceivee? And how is it that we can make sure we're not on the deceiving end? By searching the Scriptures daily to find out if any truth claim about God, even the ones you hear here, are really so. Well, notice Jesus goes on. Why are people going to freak out in the last days? Look at verse 10. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Boy, doesn't that sound like the last couple of years? You know, it's funny. There was a time in my uh, study of biblical prophecy, in my walk with God, where I said, yeah, I could see nation rising against nation, certainly the Cold War and You know, we grew up in my era, we actually did duck and cover drills under our desks in case the uh, Russians nuked us. Uh, You know, I could see that, you know, uh, wars, you know, we certainly see that. Uh, You know, I could see, you know, the idea of earthquakes in various places. You know, the great tsunami disaster that we went through a few years ago, an earthquake that was so strong we were told that the earth, the entire earth, Rang like a bell for three days afterwards, seismologically, as a result of the incredible force of this undersea earthquake that devastated not just Thailand and Indonesia, but sent a wave that actually devastated the entire eastern coast of India before it was all said and done. Oh, yeah, earthquakes, we can certainly see that. But I always used to go, oh, you know, yeah, but pestilences? Come on, we beat polio. We got science now, you know, we got vaccines, we got all these different things. Surely we don't have to worry about pestilences anymore. <laughs> oh, boy, was I wrong. Last couple of years, even to this day, there's people that are still living in tremendous fear of plagues and pestilences. But notice something that Jesus says here. All these things are going to happen But the end is not yet, according to Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 8. These are the beginning of sorrows, birth pains, if you will. Yeah, we will see wars and rumors of wars. We will see earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. We will see fearful sights and great signs from heaven. We could talk about how uh, now it seems that uh, every other week they're saying, oh, yeah, there's this huge asteroid that's big enough to wipe out half the population of planet Earth, and it's going to have a near miss. But uh, hopefully it's not going to uh, actually deviate from course, and we really don't know what would happen if one of these things was actually coming our way. But now we've spotted them. You know, we, we see these things beginning to happen And Jesus said these things will happen, but they'll happen like birth pains, like labor pains. Labor pains begin and build to an intensity, and then they subside after a while. And then they get even more intense, and then they subside after a while. And then they get more intense, and they subside after a while. And they increase in frequency and intensity as the big event draws near. The wise prophetic student keeps a weather eye on the events of the day and uses these things as an encouragement. Why? Because Jesus said in verse 9, when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. These things must come to pass first. The end will not come immediately. See, someone who understands biblical prophecy from Jesus' point of view doesn't walk around terrified. Now, that is something that will separate you from the herd in this day and age. You know, I, I really believe the motto of most people, especially after the pandemic and such, it goes something like this, when in fear or in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. Panic is a national obsession. We're flipping and we're flopping, and people are, are literally seeing their mental health being taken away from them. There are studies that show that uh, this idea of the despair of imminent death is creating depression, anxiety disorders uh, that are beginning to skyrocket in our culture. You thought the pandemic was bad. You thought the coronavirus was bad. The reaction to the coronavirus is probably more devastating, the actual health of people, than even the virus itself. But consider an alternative. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 1 says, The wicked flee when none's pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You see, when we understand that God is working out a plan, we can have peace. God says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7: God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. What a beautiful promise we have in this crazy world we live in. And notice the final piece of the puzzle here: prophecy also produces patience. Within our lives. Look at verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you'll answer, for I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You'll be betrayed by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost, by your patience possess your souls. Now, this had to be a shocker for the disciples. They thought Jesus was going to return and set up the kingdom, so much so they were bickering with one another over who was going to get the plum jobs as far as overseeing the renewed kingdom of Israel. Jesus is saying is, no, there's a rough and rocky road ahead. You're to get my message out in the interim between my first coming and my second coming. And you're going to find yourself getting that message out in some pretty intimidating places. But don't worry, words and wisdom will be given to you at that moment. I'm going to give you what to say. And boy, I'll tell you, if you find yourself uh, in a place where you want to see God move in a powerful way in your life, put yourself in a place where you're sharing your faith with non-believers. You'll see how God will give you wisdom and, and insight in those situations that you never knew you had. But notice what the the, off, uh, the offshoot of all this is going to be. But not a head of your hair will be lost, Jesus says, by your patience possess your souls. What Jesus is saying is the time between my first coming and second coming, you can count on this, it's going to be an opportunity for patience. A, because we're going to have to wait for Jesus to return, and his timetable and ours are two different things. But B, we're going to find ourselves in a place where this world, wanting to shut us up, wanting to shut us down, I'm going to provide some pretty hairy sets of circumstances. To add to this, the wicked one himself is going to want to come against you if you start shining with the love and light of Jesus Christ. Jesus' advice, be patient. Oh, patience. You know, that's one of those things that always looks good on other people but we ourselves not really into that we pray prayers like god i want patience and i want it right now but understand patience is one of the prime tools that god uses to make us into the image and likeness of jesus it's such a powerful one james chapter one verses two through four says count it all joy When you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. You want to be perfect? You want to be complete? You want to be lacking in nothing? You want to be everything God created you to be? You want to have every good and perfect gift, every blessing of God? Ask Him for the one blessing that no one wants to ask for. Ask him for patience. Ask him to put you into circumstances where all you can do is wait and trust and hold on to the promises of God. You see, that's what biblical prophecy leads us to. It gives us perspective on these world events. God is in control, gang. Even though this world seems out of control, take it to the bank. God is in control, and Jesus is coming soon. He's going to right this world gone wrong. Secondly, prophecy results not in groaning, but in growing. We discover that God has put us in this place, specifically in this place and time, so that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want these blessings? That's why we teach biblical prophecy. Not just because we teach through the whole Bible verse by verse and word by word and one every three verses is predictive. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about prophecy around this place. But because prophecy is going to change your life like no other doctrine in Scripture. Oh, in the book of Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, we are told that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men When you really get the message behind it that Jesus is coming soon, it brings confidence, it brings peace, it brings stability, it brings Christ-likeness like no other to our lives. Let's not try to go about our lives in this crazy world without that amazing gift. Lord, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you so much for giving us this gift of the heavenly heads up of biblical prophecy. And, and I thank you, Lord, that no matter how chaotic this world might seem, no matter how overwhelming it might be to look at the headlines and, and wonder if anybody in this world knows what they're doing. Uh, when we hear of rumors in, uh, of wars and, and we hear about biolabs and we hear about uh, nuclear weapons being threatened in conflicts around the world, when, when we see Israel's enemies gathering against them and And when we see that the things that we thought we could always count on are are like sinking sand, thank you for the firm foundation we have in your changeless, powerful, eternal word. Thank you, Lord, that we have the prophetic word made more sure within our lives. A constant confidence that you mean what you say and say what you mean and that you are not only working out your plan to right this world gone wrong, you're also working out your perfect plan no matter what's going on in our lives. We thank you for how powerful and practical prophecy truly is. Help us to receive that gift in the way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.